Wollt ihr euch sagen, dass ihr euch nicht mehr so gut seht? You're very welcome to episode 25 of Blurini Belidish or Folklore Fragments, the podcast from the National Folklore Collection at University College Dublin. Uh, I hope you're keeping well and generally taking care out there in the alternate reality science fiction timeline we now call home. It's been a strange few months for all and sundry, and while the university and the folklore archive is still closed to the public, um, I've managed to cobble together a few sources for you, which I hope will satiate you in your undying thirst for all things folkloric. So, with the sun coursing high and the summer upon us, we will in this episode explore customs and practices marking the arrival of midsummer, a period of widespread jubilation and celebration in which communal bonfires are lit uh, and in which protection is sought for crops, couples and cattle alike. We'll take a look at the evidence for pre-Christian European midsummer bonfires, or lack thereof, spoiler alert there, uh, before examining altogether more recent, by which I mean from around the 6th century on, Christianized interpretations of Midsummer, looking in detail at accounts of Irish Midsummer celebrations, which are traditionally held on the eve of the Feast uh, of St. John on the 23rd of June, on, on the night of the 23rd of June. Now, before examining Midsummer in, in greater detail, I think it's worth saying a few words regarding um, traditional conceptions of time, as opposed to purely materialist or purely modern, shall we say, conceptions of time. Um, I want to do this in order to underpin our discussions regarding calendar custom and clarify the role and importance of ritual specifically in the traditional calendar year. So from a materialist or modern perspective, time is understood or could be seen to be understood as a quantifiable, uh, irreversible order of consecutive events, which is essentially indifferent to its own contents. So the timing of an event in this sense, or under this understanding, does not infer any special or spiritual quality upon it. From a traditional perspective, time is understood quite differently and does not flow uniformly, but is instead broken down into cycles and periods, each of which have their own functions and contain separate essential qualities and opportunities and so on. Festivals and rituals then serve to awaken or express the corresponding essence of the time at hand. So if you think of it in this way, our festivities and calendar customs represent a sort of sacred history defined qualitatively as opposed to a purely secular conception of time which is defined under the reign of quantity. So, clear as mud. Listeners to this podcast will be familiar with the quarter days or the cross quarter days as they're sometimes known in Irish tradition. We've covered some of these in previous episodes, St. Bridget's Day and Sound and so on. But it's worth covering and going over again. So if you imagine the year as a perfect circle, the quarter days, unsurprisingly enough, divide that year, divide that circle into its four seasons of spring, summer, autumn and winter. And they do this with a festival, namely St. Bridget's Day, May Day, Garland Sunday or Lunasa and Halloween or Samhain. So each of these mark a specific quarter day and a shift into a new, a new season. Now imagine these festivals as falling at... Uh, say 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock on a circle. Well, falling exactly halfway between each of these quarter days uh, and further dividing the ritual year from four to eight segments are the solstices and equinoxes. We have two solstices where the sun essentially kind of stands still before reversing its direction uh, and equinoxes where day and night are of equal length. 
Uh, the sun, of course, doesn't actually stand still, just in case anyone started screaming there as they're listening. Anyway, around these dates, uh, we see another host of important festivals appear. So apart from the quarter day traditions, at these times of equinoxes and solstices, we also see, see um, a host of important festivals appear. Some of you may have heard these before, for example, as Christmas uh, and Easter ish, which is kind of around the spring equinox. Uh, there are harvest festivals in Europe around the September equinox. And the Feast of St. John's, or Midsummer, is celebrated in Ireland and elsewhere all over Europe as St. John's Eve, Bonfire Night, or Tindafela Owen on the night of the 23rd of June. Midsummer, the shortest night of the year, with the sun at its height. All over Europe, St. John's Eve is celebrated in largely the same manner, with communal attendance at bonfires and revelry, sport, music, mirth and merriment being the order of the day or night, as it were. The widespread distribution of these customs would suggest their being of some antiquity, but some 19th century scholars appear at times to have been wont to stare into midsummer bonfires a little too long, and they wound up waxing lyrical about the strong savour of pagan solar cults apparent in midsummer observances, etc. But, in fact, it's actually very difficult to speak with any certainty concerning the pre-Christian origins of midsummer celebrations, especially where uh, bonfires and fires and so on are concerned. In proclaiming the pagan origins of midsummer bonfires, one can find oneself swept and rolling swiftly down slippery slopes littered with the corpses of tweed-clad scholars of yore, who previously attempted such feats. Um, so James Fraser, who wrote The Golden Bough and so on, is a kind of classic for this. Uh, he was inspired by the ideas of Wilhelm Mannhardt and he explained midsummer observances as, and here's a quote, sun charms or magical ceremonies intended to ensure a proper supply of sunshine for men, animal and plants. Um, but uh, other scholars have come to altogether different conclusions to Fraser in their own research and state that while sun worship was a feature of pre-Christian European tradition, observances in this regard tended to be held at the beginning of summer. And there's little by way of evidence to suggest that contemporary midsummer observances stem from indigenous northern European tribes in the same way, for example, uh, that our midwinter Yule customs did. Jakob Grimm, writing in his Deutsche Mythologie, noted two seasons in summer for the lighting of fires uh, in Germany, with Easter fires in the north of Germany and midsummer fires being held in the south. The former he regarded as the fires of native heathenism, which is an amazing quote. Uh, with the latter, midsummer fires he determined as coming from the church, uh, borrowing from Italy, if I recall correctly. So while vestiges of pre-Christian rites and observances are apparent in many other traditional festivals and calendar customs, suggestions that these midsummer festivities were carried out in the hope of maturing more sunshine as part of a widespread pagan solar cult, etc., 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 they aren't supported by much evidence. That being said, the Romans celebrated the festival of Flores Fortuna, dedicated to the goddess of fortune and the personification of luck on the 24th of June, though again, no reference to sun worship and no bonfires are described here. Uh, writing nearly 2,000 years ago, the great Ovid described the occasion with the following. He said, Time slips away and we grow old with the silent lapse of years. There is no bridle that can curb the flying days. How quickly has come round the festival of Fours Fortuna, yet seven days and June will be over. The practices at this time involved inebriated youths travelling by boat to the temples of Fours Fortuna, as Ovid again describes, writing, Ye flower-crowned skiffs, bear brands of youthful revellers, and let them quaff deep draughts of wine on the bosom of the stream. 
eloquently put there of it. Not sure one could describe a night in the town in Ireland in the same uh, lovely terms. As to the rest of the day's revelry, Ovid is largely silent, though one expects that all those flower festooned skiffs and uh, the gentle quaffing of wine on the bosom of the stream and so on all converted into a massive hangover on the 25th of June in ancient Rome. Anyway, whatever the origins of midsummer observances, it is safe to say that this period has long been observed as a sacred time for our forebears. The Council of Agda. Ah oh yes, the Council of Agda, I hear you say. This was held in the 6th century and was attended by household names and luminaries such as Tetradius of Bourges, uh, Heraclianus of Toulouse and Galactorius of Banarnum. They just don't make them like they used to, do they? Uh, list the Feast of St. John the Baptist, i.e. Midsummer, as among the highest feasts of the year. This was a day in which all the faithful had to attend Mass, and Mass was held three times a day, you know the day I think that that happens is Christmas, uh, and they also had to abstain from servile work, which is excellent. Going on to note that um, while most saints' feast days celebrate the saints' death, their death and subsequent birth into new life in heaven, St. John's Day is different in that it marks the nativity or birth of John the Baptist, Christ's cousin, and it falls exactly six months before Christmas. Uh, this is interesting and it's worth bearing about and spending some time on. Professor Eamon O'Cartagon, writing in Ritual and the Rood, Liturgical Images and the Old English Poems of the Dream of the Rood Tradition, says that, here's his quote, By the 6th century, this solar cycle was completed by balancing Christ's conception and birth against the conception and birth of his cousin John the Baptist. Such a relationship between Christ and his cousin was amply justified by the imagery of scripture. The Baptist was conceived six months before Christ. We see this in Luke 136. He was not himself the light, but was to give testimony to the light. Thus, John's conception was celebrated on the 8th calends of October, the 24th of September, near the autumn equinox, and his birth on the 8th calends of July, the 24th of June, near the summer solstice. So, Christ's conception and birth takes place on the growing days, with the sun rising to its full potential from darkness of midwinter, while John the Baptist's takes place on the lessening days. And the Baptist himself proclaimed that he, i.e. Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. That's in John 3.30. So St. John's Eve, then, needs to be understood in the context of a sacred history or a cyclical, qualitative or traditional conception of time, as I mentioned at the outset of the podcast of this episode, in that it serves as a counterbalance to Christmas, with the sun's course reflecting the conception and life of these two sacred figures. So when you think of Midsummer, think of it as a sort of photo-negative to Christmas. And so to the festivities. St John's Eve was marked all over Europe, and descriptions of this festival generally centre and revolve around a large communal bonfire, which was often lit on a height in the district. This fire was attended by young and old, and there is music, drinking, carousing, singing, sporting, dancing, prayer, divination games, and a general air of fun, with company being kept into the small, or indeed not so small hours, of the next morning. In my own case, I fondly recall celebrating Midsummer on Inishbofin off the west coast of Ireland many years ago, and having spent part of the afternoon cavorting around on some class of cement truck or other, gathering fuel from the locals, I seem to recall that we made quite a good night of it at the bonfire until all hours in due deference to tradition, of course. Now, the following account is taken from a manuscript, uh, a manuscript which was collected, the material of which was collected in Abbey Field, County Limerick, in the western quarter of Ireland, and this material is collected under the 1937-1939 schools folklore scheme. And it outlines John's Eve observances in Ireland, and it notes the connection and parallels with Christmas. 
It says, St. John's Eve falls in midsummer, just as Christmas night falls in midwinter. What a sight it is to look around the countryside to see a bonfire by every family. The bonfire is lighted in the open during the summer solstice, while the Yule log is burned for fire in the winter solstice. In some places, families gather together to light the bonfire. One person brings a part of brusne, that's fuel. Another person brings a sup of hay, while another brings a pint of petrol. Good man, a pint of petrol. It is lighted at dusk. Some sing a song and more dance. When the embers are dying out, they jump across it so as to have luck for the year. Then they bring a cow and make her jump it so as to have an increase in her milk in the future. In former days, if the people had a sick animal, they would burn it in the fire, and if they hadn't, they would preserve a bone of an animal for the purpose. Such customs are observed in most European countries. The reference to bones is interesting, and uh, bones were generally a feature in the, in the, in the John's Eve fire. It's a common uh, description that bones were specifically placed in the fire. Now, descriptions like this are related from countries all over Europe. Uh, the following piece from 1935, which is roughly contemporary to the Limerick manuscript I just related, is concerns John's Eve celebrations as carried out in Spain, though they could just as easily be those of Ireland or, or her neighbours. Uh, the piece reads, No popular custom of this saint's day was more widespread in Europe than that of lighting bonfires as the nucleus of an unrestrained nocturnal festival. Hours before the bonfire, the young folk of the village are in a jubilant mood, bringing in wood for the bonfire incessantly ringing the church bells and setting off firecrackers. As soon as the sun sinks, the mighty peal of a bell is the signal for the lighting of the fire, which becomes the magnet for the entire village. The smaller boys jump over the fire following ancient custom. The bells continue their strident din. The wine, served from improvised booths, animates the youths and maidens to dance. To the music of folk songs, the crowd joins in a lively dance. The fire dies down, the older folk go peacefully home, but the young lovers continue to sing and wander about the village until dawn. Happy out. Other European midsummer observances bear great likeness to Irish calendar customs from different parts of the year. In Asturias, the men used to, young men used to climb certain peaks on the morning of, the Saint, of Saint John's Day in order to watch the sun dance. That's a practice that will be very familiar to Irish listeners as something that was carried out on Easter morning in days gone by. In certain parts of Spain, girls used to roll nude in the dewy meadows on the morning of St. John's Day, the morning dew having special curative virtues at this time. This again is a custom commonly practiced in Ireland, but on the morning of the 1st of May, and it must be noted in a somewhat less scandalous approach than that employed by the Spanish, it was customary for Irish girls to merely wash their faces in the morning dew. In Latvia, it was believed that witches stole the dew from the grass on midsummer morning while reciting a charm, everything to me, everything to me. Through this charm, one's milk profit would be stolen. Again, this exact custom is found in Ireland, but is associated with the morning of the 1st of May. Swedish midsummer observances tend not to feature large communal bonfires and are centred around, instead around a maypole. And indeed, I recall visiting the midsummer maypole with my Swedish friends, a couple of years ago and having a banquet of pickled herring and fresh potatoes while imbibing considerable amounts of schnapps and singing uh, midsummer songs again in due deference to tradition now many of the customs and practices we associate with midsummer seem to go back at least to the middle ages the following account taken from an article by michael anderson who is associate professor of musicology at the eastman school of music in the university of rochester in new york and artistic director of scala antigua a medieval and renaissance music group based in chicago describes medieval practices as carried out by the fantastically named brotherhood of the green wolf on the eve of saint john's in france he writes 
Each year, on the evening of the 23rd of June, the Brotherhood of the Green Wolf chose its new chief. Arrayed in a brimless green hat in the shape of a cone, the elected master led the men to a priest and choir. Together, the group processed to the church for mass, chanting the hymn of St. John the Baptist, Utquayant Laxus. After mass and dinner, they danced and lit a bonfire as music ensued. Following the ringing of handbells, the men sang the Te Deum and vernacular parodies of Utquayant Laxus. Just before midnight, the Brotherhood surrounded their elected Green Wolf leader and pretended to, th to throw him into the fire. After the stroke of twelve, the ceremony devolved into chaos as voices bellowed and fiddles played through the night around the fire. The next day, the raucous gaiety continued. To the sound of musketry, the brothers paraded through streets with gigantic loaf of bread adorned with greenery and ribbons. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm prepared to go on record formally here to say I have a brimless cone hat wearing esoteric order shaped hole in my life and can think of few things better than to spend time with the Brotherhood of the Green Wolf carousing through the town with muskets, attending bonfires, uh, ringing handbells, chanting, generally devolving into chaos and parading gigantic loaves of ribboned bread hither and yon. But that's just me. Now, Professor Anderson mentions two hymns which the fraternity sang as part of their celebrations, the Te Deum and Utquayant Laxus, the latter being a hymn in honour of St John the Baptist. And I'd like to send my thanks to Professor Anderson and Scala Antiqua for permission to share with you their beautiful version of Utquayant Laxus, and we will assume, judging by the sacred and measured tones um, of the piece as here rendered, that this was recorded just before the brimless cone hats, ribbon loaves and so on were cast by the fraternity into the bonfire amid the uh, noise of musketry and chaos, etc.
you can find more um, beautiful music by Scala Antica by visiting their website at www.scala.antica.org. Uh, and I'll put a link up in the SoundCloud um, description for of our, of our, the podcast page on SoundCloud. Now, the Midsummer Bonfire was a much anticipated event, with fuel being gathered in the weeks ahead of the feast, and both young and old, and men and women, all coming together to join in the sport on the night of the 23rd. The following recording was made by Leo Corduff for the Department of Irish Folklore in 1973, and in this recording, Leo is talking with Michael Garvin of Glenamoy, Eris, County Mayo. Uh, and Michael, in this piece, describes how the fire was lit on the road where all were gathered together. Well, tell me on St John's night now. Well, St John's night in the olden times was a great night. They must uh, make a great fire and sing and dance and everything. But no, like everything is yeah. quite neat. Well, where in Glencullen do they make the fire? Well, round about on the road. <coughs> they make uh, a, make well, a, they'd yeah. all gather up there. They'd all gather up there. Was it on a height or in a hollow? Uh, well, say on the middle of the and the road, and the road, most convenient place. Yeah. But of course, you know, uh, there was no truck. You would only make a fire for St. John's this time because there was no dry truck. This year? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, that, was it with turf that make it that? No, time? it's turf on the bone. Bone fire. Of what kind of bone? Any kind of bone, a sheep's bone or a cow bone. But don't make results of bone. Oh, I see. There was no use. <coughs> but well, don't. Where but would they get the turf? I mean, would they? Stuff, they, they, they stack the turf and there's the turf of their own, you know. Do you understand? Oh, yeah. Get a creel of Two crees of turf and, and... Would they go around to every house? No, you? no. Well, anywhere nearest place the turf would be convenient to take it and make a big pile of it. Put in your coals and put in, don't put in your big bone and <coughs> the sense of the way you didn't put in the bone it was no use. I see. That, that. St. John's bone fire the 24th of June. I see. Well, tell me, um, would there be people that might object to giving turf? No, 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 uh, no, no. And every all the old people comes in and pray and pray and go on their knees and go round uh, the rosary maybe three times. Would they say the rosary around the well, fire? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the old people say it in their own mind and oh, <coughs> the rosary. Wouldn't be loud. <laughs> well, they'd be saying it loud enough. But my what one rosary it was giving them bother and every different meant to talk together. <laughs> the rosary wasn't giving them all bother. Yeah. Well, who would light the fire then, John? Was there any special person in the in the village? That well, nearly all. Me and, uh, and uh, what do you call him? He was Carlin and Granahan. Another cousin of mine. And a good shoesman at that, and Ginty's. Which years, but the height was on the road, we'd collect the turban. The main thing, then you'd see on the fire being blaze, you'd see them come on. One shouting and one laughing, and so on. The one asking, is there many girls here? And so on. <coughs> Old people come in with the rosary beads that would bring it all here and go down their knees and take off their hat and play away. They'd bring hay with them? I say, a rosary beads that bring it all here and if that lent the rosary beads oh. that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, um, Used to take anything out of the when the old people be going home. Would they take anything from the fire then? Take every one of one from here, cold, throw it into the piece of pieces and into the piece of oats. Mm-hmm. There come no blight then, and the oats would be good. But we saw the coal going into the piece of pieces and the blight to come. Oh, <laughs> but the people believed in it anyway. But did you ever hear anything, John? That if somebody from a different townland, supposing they came from Rossport, ah, yeah. 
And if I took a call with me or anything like that, would it? Would you lose your crops and that I could bring you to Rossport? No, I, 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 I heard there was a fellow and he's out in Belenaya that he took a call. There was a bone fire in Clasmalini, and he brought a, a call into Belenaya, and they didn't like it. And he's there in Belenaya. He's not in my candle. It's a big garage. Oh. Yeah. He brought the luck with him. Aye, aye. He brought the call with him. This next manuscript account, collected in Clunlara and Clare, gives a sense of the anticipation in which the night was held in this part of the country. It says, We celebrate the Feast of St. John on the 24th of June. It is anxiously looked forward to by young and old on account of the big bonfires that are lit the preceding night. Days before it, long ago, people were very busy gathering sticks, firs bushes, sods of turf, old timber, all kinds of fire material. There was great excitement in each locality, each one wanting to have the biggest fire. On this night, the members of each locality gathered together. They went up to a hill, and here they lit the fire. Everyone had to do something. The old sat down and told many stories of the adventures of old. At the same, they enjoyed a smoke of the clay pipe. The young entertained themselves by telling stories, singing and reciting pieces. Then they gave refreshments to the old people. The fire lasted until morning, almost, as they had a lot of material for it. When they were about to leave, they got a big furze bush, lit it with fire, and drew it across their fields, meadows and crops, saying in Irish, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. They believed that by doing this, they would have a blessing on their crops for the year. In other parts of the country, a custom they had was to drive the beasts of the farm into the corner of a meadow or field. Then they got a furze bush and lit it from the bonfire. They struck each beast to the back with it, saying at the same time, May the Almighty Father, Son and Holy Ghost preserve my share. Amen. That was collected by Bridget Clancy in Clunlara, County Clare. Now, midsummer fires tend in Irish tradition to be divided into two main types. The first was the large communal bonfire at which the entire community was attendance. That was the one that the Brotherhood of the Green Wolf were hanging out at in France. And the second uh, was a smaller, quieter fire. This was held by the family in Ireland. So this is the kind of family fire which is sometimes known as St. John's Fireplace. Indeed, the cover image for this edition of the podcast shows one such fireplace. It was a photograph taken by Kevin Danaher on Midsummer's Eve uh, around the year 1960. And it shows young boys and girls of the family gathered around a small bonfire. Prayers were often recited at the family bonfire, which often consisted of no more than one or two furze bushes and a few sods of turf. It was usually lit in the farmyard close to the house, and when the smaller family fire died out, uh, the members of the household left it and joined in the fun at the larger communal midsummer bonfire. The communal midsummer bonfire was often lit at a crossroads or at a commonage or some other high vantage point where it could be seen for miles around and being lit at nightfall at times an elderly person or the oldest gathered at the assembly was asked to light the fire which they did while reciting the following prayer in honor the year august nivon august hunturra august hunturra erargur august era seher and on the manahar august vic august spridniv amen which translates as in honour of God and St. John to the fruitfulness of and profit of our planting and our work in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The fire being lit, more prayers were often recited by those congregated around it, sometimes with attendees kneeling down to pray or with decades of the rosary being recited uh, as part of a sunwise procession around the fire, or a small pebble might be kept to keep count uh, being thrown into the fire after each prayer. 
With prayers finished, the merriment began in earnest. Horns were blown, tin cans were beaten, and a general din and melee ensued before a night of dancing, storytelling, recitation, song, and music commenced, with all having to give their party beast to those in attendance. The following account, recorded by Jim Delaney from William Finneran of Lescobran, County Roscommon in 1977, describes the gathering of fuel for the bonfire throughout the month of June and the late hours kept at it to celebrate John's Eve. Uh, do you remember the um, bonfire? I do the bonfire was... <coughs> it was everywhere some years ago. It's only dying out now. Yeah. Where used to have it here in your village? At the end of the road there. You know where the turn is now, where the yeah. widen the road. Out there. Oh, that was, oh, here? Yeah. That was the place for it. Well, tell us how that worked out now. Well, you know the time of the year the bonfire was, everyone yeah. was going to the bog yeah. at that time. Yeah. And coming on to the bonfire, the lads would say, well, it's time to start gathering for the bonfire now. And every evening when they'd be coming home, they'd bring home some of the oh. spa, the hills they call it, you know, the old yeah. turf that was cashed during oh, the, that's right. that's the, the year. Yeah. And then if the were progressive, they had new turf, and that was the great thing, to have new turf for the bonfire. Yeah. So they dumped it there at the end of the road and brought timber and everything they could collect. That would burn, and that would be going on for nearly a week beforehand. And then the, when the 23rd come, they lit the fire. And yeah. Once the sparks and smoke went up the, the cloud, yeah. it's like the Indian smoke signal. <laughs> what time then did they light the fire? Well, sometimes the, the kids, you know, they'd come and they might light it a bit early for the adult population. They might yeah. light it at seven or eight o'clock in the evening, you know, yeah. around that time. And how long did it go on to? It went on until the fire burned out then. It was a good crowd. I hadn't went on a long time. Was the dancing at it? Oh, yeah. Did they have any food at it? No, there was no food. Yeah. And no dancing shoes either. Good roof road. There's no, ta there was no ta tar roads that time. No. Yeah. And now when they have good roads to dance on, there's no one to dance on. This next manuscript account, collected in Thurles, County Tipperary, describes the sense of anticipation and the fun that was had by the people on St John's Eve, or simply Bonfire Night, as it was known in the area. It reads... The people of this district in olden times used to look forward to St. John's Day, which is commemorated on the 24th of June, for it was a great time of merrymaking for them. On the eve of this day they could be seen drawing logs of wood, turf, and everything they could procure to make a good bone fire to an appointed crossroad. When the fire was lit, the people gathered round it, and a lively dance went on. The ringing laughter and the merry shouts of the dancers could be heard for miles around. This great night of amusement was commonly called Bonfire Night. Uh, that piece was collected in, in Thurles and Tipperary. A favourite pastime at the fire involved the young boys of the district who would snatch burning sticks and embers from the fire before casting them high into the air. At other times a pitchfork might be thrust into the fire and a blazing piece of wood held aloft and um, 
uh, well, brandished about impressively. The playwright, John Milton Singh, along with his friend the artist Jack B. Yeats, brother of the great William Butler Yeats, bore witness to the casting of embers into the air on Midsummer Eve when visiting Bell Mullet in County Mayo in 1905. He describes the event as follows, writing that the impression one gets of the whole life is not a gloomy one. Last night was John's Eve and bonfires, a relic of druidical rites, were lighted all over the country, the largest of all being placed in the town square of Bell Mullet, where a crowd of small boys shrieked and cheered and threw up firebrands for hours together. This next account, recorded by Tom Munley from the from Junior Crean of Bonneville, County Clare, uh, describes the celebrations of St. John's Eve from gathering for the fire to the celebrations of music and dancing and so on held on the night itself. So here's uh, Tom in conversation with Junior. Well, I remember you did a programme there a few years ago with Kieran about <coughs> the St. John's fire. Oh, yeah. Would you just tell me about St. John's Day and St. John's Eve around here in general for the start? Well, uh, <coughs> there'd be bonfires all over the place and topsy hills and the crossroads and of course the dancing and the music would be at the crossroads too. And here over just a hundred yards over the road was the crossroads. And uh, we'd be preparing for the fire a month before St. John's Day come. And that time people used to be drawn to with horses and calves. And one young lad had to do century at the cross every day. So I did it myself. And you'll ask two sides of turf from every carman. <coughs> and they'll throw down two, maybe three or four. And they'd bring usually three creels or four in the day and that'd be twelve sides or eight sides. And we had a reiki turf nearly by the time <laughs> the night of the bonfire came. So all the people, young and old, had come to the crossroads and the fiddles and flutes would be there and the dancing sits. And uh, until 12 or 1 o'clock in the night. Now, time, I think, for a piece of music as the night's entertainment around the fire hit full pelt. This next piece from the archive, while not recorded around a midsummer bonfire, perhaps thankfully, was recorded by Kevin Danaher and Sean O'Hoig for the Irish Folklore Commission in Donegal in 1949. The piece in question, Maggie Pickens, is played here by Mickey Doherty, who is accompanied by the dancing of Colonel McEnlewan. <laughs> Thank you. 
fire, while serving as the focal point for the night's entertainments, was also believed to bring prosperity, protection, and luck to those in attendance. As the flames settled, more daring fellows in attendance would leap across it backwards and forwards in displays of bravado, or couples might jump over it for luck. Sir William Wilde, writing in popular in Irish popular superstitions, describes how if a man was about to perform a long journey, he leapt backwards and forwards three times through the fire to give him success in his undertaking. If about to wed, he did it to purify himself for the marriage state. If going to undertake some hazardous enterprise, he passed through the fire to render himself invulnerable. As the fire sunk low, girls tripped across it to procure good husbands. Women great with child might be seen stepping through it to ensure a happy delivery, and children were also carried across the smouldering ashes. The protective nature of the midsummer fire extended not only to those in attendance, but to the animals and crops of the district. A common theme described regarding St. John's Eve fire was its use in ensuring a bountiful harvest. This next manuscript account from Bandon, County Cork, describes how the fire was used to protect both crops and people. It says, Bonfires are still kept up, and in one family, the farmer or his wife jump over the red embers for luck. The wife, Mrs. Murphy, takes a kindled stick and ashes to each field where a crop is going, i.e. corn, wheat, potatoes and roots. This red ash is supposed to banish the fairies and keep the crop from being blighted. In other parts, the people dance around the fire, and in Mayo, a boy who has a wish to marry a neighbouring girl is particular to catch her hands and dance around the fire, hoping to be lucky in this way of getting the Colleen. This next recording, made by Dahi O'Hogan from Tommy Hannon in County Limerick, describes how couples used jump through the midsummer fire. On St. John's, uh, John's Eve, uh, we used to light big bonfires in the hill of Brofanald, and you'd see Blazing in the hill of Knockgore, and it seemed blazing in Knockhaven, it seemed blazing in Knockderk. We used to light them all west, was a custom. But has, has your seed old holiday around the fire? Oh, we'd uh, sing and dance and all that, and uh, the girl just to jump across the fire and all that, and the boy and the girl and see which of them would they'd be married if they could jump the fire. That was an old custom here. When the fire was out, each one took home a pinch of ashes. Yeah, for what? I don't know what it was, but everyone took the, a, a, a pinch of ashes from the embers. I did. I remember that custom quite well, sir. That carried on up to, actually, the time of the last war. I did. We still always gathering. We'd uh, gather up everything in a big bonfire up on the hill, broke all fours and all that. The other fellas in Lockerk and Lock, uh, Lockhaney and Lockgor would have their fires. That'd be a big beacon and look towards Drum and you'd see another. The whole countryside used to be lit up on that night. The costumes seem to have died completely, I don't know, you don't see any of those things now. Glowing embers and ashes were also taken from the fire and deposited or thrown into the fields in order to bless and protect the crops. Ashes from the fire might be taken home and placed in the dairy, or a charred stick from the fire would be used to mark a cross over the door of the outhouses. Cattle were sometimes struck with burning embers from the fire, and firs or gorse bushes lit from the midsummer fire were often used for exactly this purpose, as the following manuscript piece from County Limerick describes. It says, On St. John's Eve there is a sheaf lit and taken out, and each beast is struck with it. 
The end of the sheaf is then brought in and placed between the thatch and the rafters. This was done to protect the cows from all harm during the year. Another account from County Wexford describes a similar practice, outlining how on St John's Eve every place is lit up with bonfires. The farmers make the sheep and cattle leap over them and ask God to bless the animals. They also ask him to bless the whole farm and crops. Indeed, ashes from the midsummer fire, along with a mixture of water and blood, sometimes drawn from the cattle themselves, was given as a drink to cows, slightly gross, in order to protect them from malign influence throughout the year, having to drink your own blood and water and ash to protect you. We return now to a conversation between Tom Munnelly and Junior Crean, in which Junior describes the protection of cattle at midsummer. The old men had a custom. Of course, it wouldn't be that till 11 o'clock. The, the, the longest day in the year and when the darkness had come the cattle would get the smell of the smoke and they'd, they'd see the light and they'd come around sniffing and, and they'd be around the, the fields inside the cross and the old men used tell us the, the four bushes would be there specially for this to light the four bushes and chase the cattle that it was a sign of look they'd bring their calves all right and there'd be no trouble or no sickness with them Mm-hmm. It was an old custom. Did they have a special name for them bushes at all, Junior? No, no, like the first bush. But uh, out of the fire at all for a month, nights, to be the next night again, but the big crowd wouldn't be there, only the locals, you know, mm-hmm. and they'd be dancing away for nearly while the, the turf at home. Now, they just tip the calves with the lighting bushes there, would they? They would, they'd chase them around, you know, they could, if they could keep up to them, they'd give them a little singe, like. Mm-hmm. And would they throw ever throw the bushes into into the fields for the same reason that you know you'd get a good crop? They used, yes. But yeah. did they have that in mind, Junior? No, they had, I suppose they had. But then the ashes would be brought and shaking the crops. Mm-hmm. The potatoes and the corn and vegetables. Father, the son, the Holy Ghost, and you would shake it around. It was supposed to bring that the crops would grow well and no disease, no. It's worth noting that there also existed other midsummer beliefs and customs aside from those centred around the bonfire. Herbs were often gathered at this time by women, and St John's wort in particular was believed to be efficacious as a protection against malign supernatural influence or interference. Tradesmen in certain parts of the country used to march dressed in ribbons and sashes on this day, as indeed did tradesmen in Galway. Hardiman's History of Galway describes the practice thus. The Nativity of St John the Baptist, they celebrate a very peculiar kind of pageantry. On the evening of that day, the young and old assemble at the head of the village, and their mayor, whose orders are decisive, adjusts the rank, order and precedence of this curious procession. Then they set out, headed by a band of music, and march with loud and continued huzzas and acclamations of joy, accompanied by crowds of people through the principal streets and suburbs of the town. The young men, all uniformly arrayed in short white jackets with silken sashes, their hats ornamented with ribbons and flowers, and upwards of sixty or seventy of the number bearing long poles and standards with suitable devices which are in general emblematic of their profession. To heighten the merriment of this festive scene, two of the stoutest, disguised in masks and entirely covered with partly coloured rags as merry men, with many antic tricks and gambols, make way for the remainder. In the course of their progress, they stop with loud cheerings and salutations opposite of the houses of the principal inhabitants from whom they generally receive money on the occasion. 
Having at length regaled their village, they assembled in groups, dancing around and sometimes leaping and running through their bonfires, never forgetting to bring home part of the fire which they consider sacred, and thus the night ends as the day began, in one continued scene of mirth and rejoicing. It's worth noting that St. John appears to have been regarded as the patron of stonemasons and tradesmen in medieval Europe, and indeed the Freemasons historically celebrate this day as an important one. The Grand Lodge of Ireland used to install their Grand Master on the Feast of St. John, and the first Grand Masonic Lodge was formed on the feast day of St. John Baptist in 1717, so there may be some uh, lingering connection here from, from the custom just described. In other quarters, the blessing of boats and nets of fishermen took place, and in other parts of the country, holy wells dedicated to the saint were visited by the local populace. Not all, however, attributed the origins of the Midsummer Fires to St. John, and a curious belief in Limerick was held regarding Anya, the goddess of summer and sovereignty. Anya dwells on Nakaini, or Knuck Anya, literally the hill of Anya, as is described in this account from County Limerick, which reads, Knuck Anya, or Anya's hill, fairs and sports were held here from the remotest times in connection with the Fianna. Here resides the Daedonan fairy Anya, who rules over Munster as queen of the fairies. Now, farmers in the locality used to bring lighted torches to her tomb on midsummer before bringing them back home again and leaving them in their fields to garner her protection for the year ahead. So, as we sit here with the fire burning down to the embers, I can only wish you good health and farewell. May Fortuna smile on you, may the brotherhood of the Green Wolf cavort in your general direction, and may St. John the Baptist himself bless you and see that your labour bears good fruit. I'm going to leave you now with a piece from Tommy Hannon as he describes the mysterious practices at Knuck Anya and the strange goings on there at Midsummer. Thanks for listening and until next time, Slán Bio. She's supposed to be Anna Clea, but she. she hmm? Who was that? Well, who was. She was the woman who uh, uh, the hill is actually named after, isn't she? Didn't you see her tomb on the top of the hill? Right. Yes, I could point it out to you, Anita. There's a big uh, mound on the top of the hill where this Anaclear is supposed to be buried. But uh, she's supposed to have come there. And she then uh, there's to light the clears. And all these farmers, well, the Quindlins and all those who lived around there, they'd all go up on a pilgrimage and lay a clear all around this grave on a certain night in the year. I think it was in about St. John's time, the 22nd is it, of July? In about that time. They'd all go up the hill with the lights at clear and lave it up in this mound. What's the key of time? It, it, it's uh, actually uh, uh, just to be said a turf lighting on top of a impaled on a stick or a pike. What well, time? Uh, that was a custom. 